All right, good morning, good morning, good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. My name is Steve, and I am the lead pastor of Trailhead Church. It truly is my honor that you are joining us uh, for our worship service this morning and uh, as we open the Word of God. Um, and uh, I want to I remind you, if you are watching this on Facebook or if you're watching it on Vimeo, be sure to like our social media uh, stuff over on Facebook, on, on Instagram, and on Twitter. Um, so that you can stay connected to what's happening in our community. We push out a lot of information via those venues. So happy 4th of July, y'all, on this nice, hot, steamy weekend. Happy 4th of July. I hope you can shoot off some bottle rockets and, uh, and light some fireworks. There's, there's really nothing more American than blowing stuff up. Uh, we love to blow stuff up. Sometimes a little bit too much, right? We love the combination of, of, of heat and uh, volatility, <laughs> right? Which maybe explains why we love our conflict, right? Conflict is as American as anxiety and apple pie, uh, and it's hard to know which we love the most. Um, and I am guessing that our love for conflict, honestly, is, is pretty closely tied to our love for anxiety, right? As, as we work our way progressively through the summer and get closer to the presidential election in November, the heat's only going to get turned up and the volatility is only going to be increased. My social media feed is filled with people trying to blow each other up. Like it's already like filled with, with political and economic and social issue posts that are all meant to, to blow up this person and blow up that argument and, and, and blow up that group of people, right? We live in the middle of a cultural battlefield and we use shame and we use bullying and we use anger and we use snark as, as our weapons. Um, in fact, we have um, as uh, whatever mixed generation we currently are, um, <laughs> created a whole new form of warfare, right? Meme warfare. Uh, and it is being waged uh, every single day. Every divisive issue has become a hill to die on. Or, or on, if we're more honest about it, we're not really looking for a hill to die on. We're looking for a hill to kill on. And so every divisive issue becomes an issue on which we're willing to kill somebody else's voice or kill their perspective or, or make them feel foolish or to shame them or to otherwise defeat them and humiliate them. Y'all, this is not the way of Jesus. I mean, I can just say that, that simply and that up front. This is not the way of Jesus. This is not the call of the gospel, right? This does not reflect the love of God. This does not in any way translate the values of the kingdom of God, right? There's nothing about this that, that reflects Jesus, the gospel, or the kingdom. We are fighting the wrong battles, and we're doing it in the wrong strength, and we're doing it with the wrong weapons, and we're all losing. We're all losing. So our new sermon series starting this morning is called Disarmed, and we are looking at the armor of God in Ephesians 6, um, specifically because as I thought about this and I wrestled with this, I thought this would be a, a, a valuable passage for us to sit in because the reality is until we disarm the wrong armor, we can't put on the right armor. Until we lay down the wrong weapons, we can't take up the right strength, right? So this morning, uh, I want to talk about the right enemy. 
Who, who's, the, who's the right enemy to actually wage war against? Who's the right enemy to strive against, right? Because if we fight against the wrong enemies, we're actually going to become foot soldiers in the wrong army. And we're going to become um, service people in the army of the true enemy. So who is our enemy? Well, it's right here in our passage in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Um, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Right? And some of you are like, seriously, Steve? The devil? You believe in that, that red, horned, tailed, pitchfork, carrying dude? No, I don't believe in him, but I absolutely believe in a spiritual being that is... Um, made with incredible power and cunning and, and uh, is a fallen angel, right? Um, the scripture tells us we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Uh, the flesh being that internal part of us that is, that is broken by our rebellion and, and thrives on trying to be independent from God. The world, the systems that we create to do life apart from God, to find the fullness of life apart from the God who, who gives it, right? And then there's another party, the devil. There, there is an external force that is in line with our flesh and in line with the broken systems we create to, to oppress people for our benefit, to find goodness in ways God doesn't give it, right? That, that the world, the flesh, and the devil, and, and the devil is real and, and part of this uh, problem, right? It, it, listen, if God could create a realm that we can see and feel and exist in, and it seems so real to us because we can touch it, right? God, God is just as able to create a realm we can't see. A realm made of, of spirit, right? And if there was a, a rebellion in our world against the God who made it, it makes sense that there could be. And in fact, we're told there was a rebellion in the spirit world, right? And so what we're talking about, we're talking about the devil, is, is we're not talking about this cultural perception of who he is. You know, the, the red pitchforked dude that we like to, you know, it's like a child's thing. And nor are we talking about poltergeist, right? This this strange malevolent force that shows up in pianos and makes strange lights flash on and off in the middle of the night so that you're creeped out walking down to your basement, right? No, he is, he is an angel who rebelled against God and led many other angels to follow him, right? He, he, he is an enemy of great intelligence and of, of incredible power because he was created... Um, really is, we're told, the most glorious, most powerful of God's angels. But he rebelled from his position of honor. He's a fallen angel. And, uh, and, and he led others, right? So our battle isn't just with him. It's, it's with this, this organized group, right? Uh, Ephesians 6.12, the next verse tells us, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? We're not, our, our, our struggle is not against humans. Humans aren't our enemy, Humans are our battle, our, our, not our battlefield, but our, our mission field, right? No, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, right? Our fight isn't against other humans. Do you get that? Our fight is not against other humans. Our, our enemy isn't human. Our fight is with an organized, invisible structure of malevolent spirit beings, right? That there is a demonic structure 
that works in concert with our flesh and the world, this, this, this culture and system of doing life apart from God, right? That these three work in concert to ultimately um, destroy us and rob God of His glory, right? Now, now we don't know fully what is meant by God, uh, Paul's description in these verses, right? Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces, right? We, I, I don't know that, that there's a real strong distinction between any of these. What, what we can take from this is that there is an implied order and structure to their relationship with each other. Now, y'all, this is terrifying. There isn't just systemic evil in the physical world around us. There is systemic evil in the spiritual world that surrounds us. It is ordered, structured, systems of authority and power that are organized together to do evil. They are driven by a malevolence, but they are not chaotic. They are not disordered, right? There is, there is a structure. Our, our enemy is very powerful, very intelligent. He is a fallen angel and his followers, the other fallen angels. And what weapon does he bring to the battle? Right? He's our enemy, our mortal enemy. What, ba- what weapon does he bring to the battle? Well, according to verse 11, we are to stand against the devil and his schemes. The primary weapon that he brings against us are schemes. Now, Paul doesn't explain what his schemes are, right? He just kind of drops it here like, like it should be kind of obvious, Right? In fact, he says as much in 2 Corinthians 2.11. Right? In 2 Corinthians 2.11, he says this, we act in love, and that's kind of a summary of the passage, we act in love in order that Satan might not outwit us. Right? Scheming, he might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Right? Paul says in that passage, like, like we know what they are. They're obvious, right? We're not going to let them outwit us because we understand his schemes, right? They're too obvious to have to explain. So I think I better explain them. Now for us to understand his schemes, we need to understand his motivation um, because his schemes flow from his motivation. Remember that the devil isn't God, nor is he a God, nor is he uh, counterbalancing power to God, right? right? Satan is not uh, the yin to God's yang. You know what I'm saying? Like, like he is not the counterbalancing power of darkness against God's power of, of light. He is a creation of God. God created him, right? He, he didn't, is not coexistent with God. He, he did not come from someplace other than God. God created him. Now, he was the most glorious and powerful of God's angelic order. In fact, so glorious so powerful, so intelligent, that he deceived himself into thinking that he could, in fact, be God's equal. That the glory that he showed in reflection to God could, in fact, compete with the glory of God. So he is glorious, he is powerful, he is intelligent. But here's what I want you to catch. He's limited. He is a creature He's limited. He is unable to actually stand in conflict with God. So, he's more glorious. 
He's more powerful. He's more intelligent than humans. But like humans, he's not God. Now, let me ask you this. Why would a God of immense glory, power, and intelligence, a spirit being, even care what humans do? Right? We're just stuck on this, on this earth. Right? Why, why would he even care? Well, we're not told exactly. But I think we can make an educated guess. There, there is a, a bigger difference between humans and angels than just the fact that, that we are made of, of physical matter and they are made of, of spirit, right? There's, there's a bigger difference than the fact that, that we, are, we are these creatures made of dirt um, and, and they are creatures made of spirit, right? There's a big difference. We as humans were actually created in the image of God. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read that that God said, let us make man in our image. Male and female, we will make them. Right? God created men and women in his very image. We are unique in all of creation in that that we bear a unique stamp of the image of God. And, And having been given this stamp of the image of God, we were then entrusted with being stewards of all creation. We were entrusted with being stewards of everything else that was created. I'm guessing that was a bitter pill for a being who likened himself to being equal with God. That that men and women made of dirt, these frail little mud men and mud women, would exercise dominion over the rest of creation would bear a glory that he himself would never bear. I can only guess that that would be overwhelmingly bitter to him. So we do know this. I don't know his motivation. I'm only guessing. That's my best guess. But I do know what he did. He set out to destroy us. He set out to rob God of his glory in this pitiful creation of humanity. And he did it through his schemes. So what are his schemes, and how are we supposed to discern them? Well, I think his schemes have always been the same. They've been the same from the beginning, right? In Genesis chapter 3, when he shows up in the story in the form of a serpent, and he meets with our first mother Eve, he, he begins with a loaded question, right? He starts talking to Eve about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree that they were uh, commanded not to eat from. They could eat from all the other trees of the garden, but, but not this one tree. And, 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 and he says, so, so why are you not supposed to eat from it? And she says, well, we're not supposed to, to, to eat it or, or even touch it. And, 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 and Satan says this, did God actually say? Did God actually say? Now, notice he doesn't come with an accusation. He he doesn't come with with an argument. He comes with a very subtle question that is intended to open the door to mistrust. Did God really say? And then, a little bit later, he follows that up with an incredibly deceptive promise, a promise that honestly is nine-tenths truth. Those are the worst kind of lies because it looks like truth, it feels like truth. You can examine it, it seems like truth, but the one-tenth that, that isn't true makes the entire thing a deceptive lie. And this is his lie. You can be like God. 
right? Very, very subtle. You can be like God. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can be like God knowing the difference between good and evil. And when you do that, you can be like God and no longer humbly dependent on God. Did he really say, can you really trust him? You can be independent. It undercuts trust in God and it seduces us to trust in ourselves. Satan isn't God. So his greatest strength against God has always been deceit. He he can't flex his muscles in any way that would intimidate God. And so what he has used is the power of his intellect and, and, and the seductive nature of false promises. The weapon he uses against God is his power to seduce and deceive other, ke- other creatures to rebel against God. See, listen, if he can get us to believe a lie, we'll destroy ourselves. He doesn't have to do the work. In fact, he doesn't have to do a thing. If he can get us to believe a lie, we will destroy ourselves. So that's his scheme. That's his scheme to 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 deceive us or to seduce us into not trusting God and instead trust ourselves. To to believe the lie that you can and in fact need to be like God. It undermines our humble dependence on God and it disrupts our experience of the love of God. It seduces our pride to be independent from God. His motivation is to destroy us. Not because we're something to him, but because he wants to rob God of his glory. His schemes are to undercut our trust in God, cutting us off from responding to the love of God. He wants to seduce our pride so that we'll act independently from God, cutting us off from the power and the provision that God provides. Now listen, I have to think that there was a moment in the garden after he deceived our our first parents that, that he believed that he had won. There had to be a moment of, of satanic delight when he offered uh, this deceptive lie and seduced um, with, with this, and mankind took it, right? Eve, Eve ate, and Adam followed her lead, and mankind took it hook, line, and sinker, ingested it, and internalized the lie, right? And it was a double hooked lie that, that he he keeps empowered over both hooks, pride and shame, right? So there's, there's a continual pride which says God isn't trustworthy, so you better make your own way, provide for your own needs, fight for your own security, establish your own glory, uh, pursue your own pleasure, right? There's this, this pride that says God isn't trustworthy, so you better do it on your own. And then there's this shame that continually whispers, you know, one says that, 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 that God's not trustworthy, the other says that you're not love-worthy, right? That, that now that you've rebelled against God, how could God ever love you? Now that you've rebelled against God, how could God ever be for you? Now that you've rebelled against God, how can you ever return to the God you've betrayed, right? He's got pride and he's got shame, and both of them push us to the same place. Isolation from God's grace and independence from God's power. He deceives and then he seduces and then he condemns, and then he deceives, and then he seduces, and then he condemns, all with the purpose of keeping us from that place of humbly receiving the love of God. But his triumph in the garden was short-lived, right? That moment where he was like, 
Mankind has rebelled against God. God, God's glory has been tarnished. Um, these weak little mud men and women, man, I did it. I did it. They're no longer glorious over me. His triumph was short-lived because right there in Genesis chapter 3, God speaks to the serpent and, and makes a promise. He says, basically, there's going to come a son of the woman, a seed of the woman, and, and that son will crush your head even though you bruise his heel. Right? In that moment, you know the scheming Satan had to suddenly just be spinning in schemes again. Like, what? What? This wasn't the end? Right? There's this, I, I did it. Right? But I guess I'm not done. And he went back to his, his scheming. Right? Satan went back to watching and now waiting for the sun. And, and, and Satan is in the background this whole time. Right? When, when Cain murdered Abel, Satan was in the background. When, when Saul, the first king of Israel, tried to pin David, the, the anointed true king of Israel, to the wall with a spear, Satan was in the background. When, when Herod the Great heard that there was a star in, in, in the uh, east that indicated that the true king had been born, and so he murdered all the children to and under in Bethlehem, Satan was in the background, scheming, acting, waiting. And when Jesus was born, and he realized this was the promised son, this was the Messiah, he tried to, to tempt him, he tried to seduce him, he, he tried to dissuade him, he tried to attack him. And when, and when his direct uh, uh, approach of, of scheming on Jesus didn't work, he in instead seduced the religious and political leaders of his day to crucify him. And you have to think that again, there was a moment in which he rejoiced when the promised king was crucified, when, when the promised son was hanging in humiliation, when once again this mud man who threatened his glory was, was absolutely humiliated in his weakness. And with this promised son came the death of the promised kingdom. You know there had to be rejoicing. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2.8, None of the rulers of this age understood God's hidden wisdom. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. None of them understood God's hidden wisdom in the cross. For if they had, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. See, Satan knew that he wasn't as strong as God. Satan knew that he wasn't as smart as God. Satan knew that he wasn't as strategic as God, but he thought he understood the limits of God. He had no idea how far God would go in order to love. God wasn't just going to raise up a son of Eve to be the hero of the human story. He was going to become the son of Eve, to become the hero of the human story. And he wasn't just going to, to enter the human story by becoming human and living a human life. He was born on mission to die the death we all deserve to die, that he might become our substitute in judgment 
that, that he might bear the, the, the judgment of our guilt and the, the weight of our shame to take our place in death that he might redeem us back to life. Satan could never imagine a love that loved so much that it would lead the creator of life to embrace death in order to defeat death. And in rising from the dead (laughs) to open the door so that rebel humans could by grace receive the gift of righteousness that they might be redeemed and restored, that the great rebellion might be undone, that the great sin might be atoned for, and that humanity once again could be recreated, right? Created the first time in the image of God, created the second time in the image of Christ, that we might once again bear the glory of our Creator and live in humble dependence, that we might carry out the job description of humanity living to the glory of God, being the stewards of all creation. Who could have imagined a love like this? So a few thoughts. A few thoughts as, as we wrap up. We're going to keep working our way through this passage. Um, today we're looking at our enemy. Next week we're going to be looking at um, the nature of our strength. The week after that we're going to be talking about the nature of our armor. And we'll go from there. But some observations for us this morning. Our adversary, our, our enemy, named in this passage is this being Satan. And he is working like crazy to do what he's always done. He's at work everywhere around the world. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't rest. He doesn't grow bored or distracted. He is single-mindedly malevolently focused on robbing God of his glory through destruction of men created in the image of his glory. He is determined to keep us from walking in humble dependence on God. He is committed to to doing whatever he can to block us from, from responding to the love of God and being transformed by the grace of God. He is He is doing everything he can to keep us from resting in the power of God and acting in the love of God. And he is doing it through his scheming. He is doing it through his seductive, deceitful scheming to deceive us into not trusting God and to seduce us out of of trusting God and instead trusting ourselves, inflaming our shame and stoking our pride. His power is founded on deception. And we fall into his power when he outwits us with his deception. We fall into his power. We become his tools when when we allow him to define our mission instead of the gospel. When we allow him to define our enemies instead of scripture. When we allow him to define what measures righteousness instead of the economy of love. His power is founded on deception and his schemes, while obvious, are devilishly hard to see. And if we aren't humbly, confidently rooted in grace, 
They will trick our minds and they will seduce our pride. They will inflame our fear and they will lead us like Cain to murder Abel. Like Saul, we will try to defeat the breaking in kingdom of God to fight for the kingdom of man. Like Herod, we will seek to murder those we find a threat when they actually bring absolutely no threat against us. If we're not careful, we will become tools of our enemy. And we'll end up spending all of our mental and spiritual energy wrestling against the wrong enemies. And, and, and you'll be wrestling against flesh and blood. Right? Flesh and blood. Y'all listen to me. People aren't your enemies. People who disagree with you aren't your enemies. People who say things that are threatening to you aren't your enemies. People who make you uncomfortable aren't your enemies. People who, who vote for a different political candidate from you are not your enemies. People who have a different social agenda from you are not your enemies. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood. They are not the battlefield. They are the mission field. We are not called to defeat them. We are called to love them with the love we have received. The great command is to love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is nothing about defeating, shaming, killing, overcoming, belittling, disempowering, silencing. There is nothing about those tools that reflect the call of love. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We are to love our neighbor. Who's our neighbor? The ones that are near you. The word neighbor means near one. It's the person who lives next door to you in your cul-de-sac. It's the person who works near you in your workplace. He's the, it's the person that shows up in your social media feed. It's whoever is near you. Yeah, but Steve, they don't like me. They're my enemies. Maybe that's why Jesus said, you're even to love your enemies. The mission of the gospel is love. And any other mission is a demonic misdirection that is designed to cause us not only to waste our energy and divert our strength, but to bring in demonic destruction into the lives of those that we should be seeking to serve and to connect with in the love of God. Everyone, that, every, everyone who's in this battle and everyone you're in this battle with is being satanically manipulated to lose no matter who wins. Do you realize that you can win the election and lose the war? Do you know that you can win the court battle and lose the war? Do you know that you can win the meme battle and lose the war? According to Jesus, you can win the world and lose your soul. The enemy is deceitful and cunning. And one of his schemes is to get us to attack the wrong enemies. To deceive us by inflaming our pride and igniting our shame. To, be, to get us driven by fear instead of love. By pride instead of love. By a need to win instead of love. Listen, y'all, the only way to be safe is to be secure in the love of God. The only way to win is to rest in the victory of God in Jesus. The only way 
that we can, in fact, work for our neighbor's good and move toward the fullness and flourishing of life that we all, that we all long for is to be deeply embedded in the gospel, living out gospel values, to be a member of the kingdom of God first, foremost, and even only. I love America, and I'm glad I live here. But patriotism is a horrible idol when it causes us to put our political allegiances above our gospel allegiances and will cause us to, in fact, bring satanic damage when we should, in fact, be messengers of God's divine love. The only way to stay safe is to stay secure, not in thinking the right things or trying to be on the right side, but by abiding in God's love. By, as we've looked at over the last four weeks, being filled with the Spirit, by, by abiding in the vine, by keeping in step with the Spirit, by, by sowing seed to the Spirit, right? Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. What you sow is what you'll reap. Don't think you can sow pride and reap love. Don't think you can, you can sow anger and reap grace. Don't think you can pick up the weapons of political domination and think that you aren't injuring your own soul. Your battle isn't to defeat others. Your real battle is to love them. And if we're honest, that's a whole lot harder. I can rise up against you in the pride of my flesh, but if I'm going to love you, I have to humble myself and feed deeply on grace to be set free from my fear, set free from my pride, set free from my self-centeredness, set free from, from my kingdom and my agenda. I have to be set free into the power of love. Your battle isn't to win. It's to rest in the fact that he's already won. And because he's won, we can love. And when we walk in his love, we are able to stand against the schemes of the devil. It is when we are founded in grace and deeply responsive to the love of God and learning how to push out in love toward others that we won't be outwitted by our enemy. And we will not be taken in by his schemes. And instead, we will be able to stand firm. Let me close us in a word of prayer. Father, thank you that you love us exactly as we are, that this was not a great story of tragedy, that, that, that this story doesn't end with our enemy being able to triumph over us and rob you of your glory, that you in your humility, you in your wisdom, you in your love devised a plan to redeem and restore that unleashed tremendous blessing to us, but came at infinite cost to you. That you are winning us back, not by domineering your power, not by showing up with, with all of the angelic hosts, not by, by flexing your muscles and, and making us cringe in fear, but by flexing your love, by giving us such a, an unexpected, overwhelming display of humility and love that it reawakens our hearts to a responding humility and love so that we can once again 
be humbly dependent on you, our Creator. And we can once again stand in your power and not ours. And we can be freed to love instead of trying to control, manipulate, or dominate. Lord, free us into these kingdom values. Free us into this power because it is through this power that you will redeem and restore not only us as individuals, but us collectively that will redeem and restore all of creation. And we will see fully established in your kingdom when it comes. Y'all, we're going to continue worshiping through the taking, uh, sharing of communion and then uh, continue worshiping through song.